The church needs many things today we hear. The church needs to be nice. If we would just be nice, all our problems would be solved as Christians. The church needs to stop speaking into public life. If we would only just preach the gospel, everyone would like us. The church needs to embrace deconstruction. This is all the rage among the younger generations. And basically, this means that we need to embrace doubt. Christians, it's argued, don't live by faith. The just live by doubt. If you're deconstructing, you're in the process of doubting what you have received. You essentially strip your faith down, doubting what you have received, and then you can reconstruct your faith from what remains. The church we hear as well needs to go woke. To be woke means to be aware of the systemic racism that is everywhere, fomented especially by white people, such that white people, whether they know it or not, are white supremacists in America because it has a whole lot of white people, is a white supremacist order. So the church needs to confess this. This is the need of the day. And the church needs to confess that it incubates white supremacy at every turn. And white people need to confess the sin of being white, as I make clear in my book, Christianity and Wokeness, critiquing all this. And doing so will mean then that the church has done what it needs to do and the church will be on the side of the angels. The church needs to repent of toxic masculinity. Christians have made the terrible mistake of encouraging men to be strong, of training boys to be leaders and authorities, even in certain contexts rightly understood, and this in large part accounts for what has gone wrong in the world. The church has been uh, a harvest of uh, toxic masculinity, and where boys have been encouraged to be strong in the Lord, specifically, uh, they have been encouraged and taught wrongly. And so the church needs to repent of toxic masculinity. The church needs to recognize that it is a contagion of hate. Fundamentally, that is what Christians stand for. They hate other people. They are against the LGBT community. And so the church needs to recognize that it is a place where hate roots and dwells and festers. And if the church will recognize this and own its hatefulness, then the church can begin making the dent in society it needs to make. Here is what we need to say to all of this in response today in 2022. The church needs strong men. The church needs men of God. The church needs men not who find strength in ourselves, but men who find strength in Christ. We are the weak one by nature. Christ is the strong one. But what Christ does when he saves you is he gives you strength. Romans 8:37. He makes you more than a conqueror. He does this for the whole church, but as we have seen in different places, he calls men to leadership and to take responsibility of themselves, their marriage, their home, their church, even their community understood in the right way. 
And so the central need of today in a God-centered paradigm is the recovery of what we call strong manhood. If I could solve one crisis at the political or public level across all backgrounds, across all communities, across all income levels and educational levels, it would be very simply fatherlessness. If I could call men back to being strong in God, strong in the power of the gospel, I believe, not that everything would magically go away that ails us, but that we would all of a sudden find ourselves with the tools to know God's grace in all sorts of defined ways. The church needs strong men. As I say, this doesn't mean brash, angry, sinful manhood. When we say strong manhood, we must not be misunderstood. We mean God-centered, spirit-controlled, repentance-practicing manhood. This, I believe, is the greatest need today in the church and in the culture. We need strong, God-centered men. But this is not a new need. It is an ancient one. In this second session, Why the Church Needs Men, I want to look with you at just a single verse in the New Testament. Turn with me in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. We're going to look at the first four parts of this verse in particular in order that we can walk away understanding, having already seen that men need the church, now how the church needs men. This verse reads as follows. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you, be, you do be done in love. Let's pray as we begin. Father, please help us now as we turn to your word in this second session. I pray that you will use your word to strengthen these men. I have nothing in my hands to bring. I am not what the church needs. Father, you have all that the church needs, all that every man needs. You offer us Christ. You offer us your word. You offer us the Holy Spirit indwelling each Christian for all their lives. Thank you for these gifts. My prayer now is that you will use this humble session to bless and ennoble these men. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to look at the first four elements of this verse and they comprise our four truths that we'll be discussing in this time. Our first truth is this. The church needs watchful men. The church needs watchful men. This is what the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, writing first to the elders and men who lead the church, and, and beyond that, of course, to the whole church, tells the Corinthian church, be watchful. As we begin, I simply want you to understand that as I referenced earlier in the first session, the first century church was not in a light and glancing context. Ancient Corinth was a wild, 
place. Men, if you feel like it is hard to be a Christian today, if you feel like the wind is in your face, not the wind against your back pushing you forward, that's what the Corinthian men would have felt like. They would have felt like they had temptations and sins arrayed all around them. To be a member of the city of Corinth was to be in the center of depravity in the first century Greco-Roman world. There was a temple in this city, a temple to Aphrodite, where there was temple prostitution practiced, for example. Corinth famously has two major ports, so it was a tremendous center for trade and business and merchants. And men with a little money in their pocket then did what godless men with a little money in their pocket now do when they have a free weekend. They would go to the temple, there were prostitutes there, men and women alike, and they would indulge the flesh. Beyond this, there are all sorts of pagan practices. It is to the Corinthian church, in particular in the book of 1 Corinthians, that the Apostle Paul goes against a whole host of practices. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, 14 to 15, he calls the church to distinguish between men and women in the way that they present themselves and appear. Having long hair, does this sound familiar? For a man, Paul teaches, is a disgrace. But a woman having long hair, Paul says, is her glory. Oftentimes, even today, Christians will say that's just a cultural moment for Paul that doesn't really apply in any timeless sense. Brothers and sisters, in the same way that the first century order presented the church with all sorts of problems, with men and women rebelling against God, against divine design, with men wanting to present themselves as women and women wanting to present themselves as men, so too are we in such a context. And God's glory is bound up in all of this, not just in holding the doctrine of biblical manhood, but even in the way you look, even in the way you dress. Yes, at some level, though there are gray areas and hard questions, even in the length of your hair. Don't think of the apostles of the early church being in a, an easier context when you read your New Testament than you are today. Think of the apostles and the early church as facing much the same kind of pagan culture that you and I are facing. Is it easy for you and me to pursue sexual purity in this age? It is not easy, is it? It has gotten very complicated indeed with phones and tablets and devices and computers and TVs and on it goes. You don't have to go to a physical location to commit sexual indulgence and prostitution. You can do it sitting on your couch and no one knows. And for many men, many people, many men, there's absolutely no accountability. And many men are losing their soul because of lust, because of temptation, because these matters are truly at hand. But here, a weird kind of form of encouragement. Actually, it was hard in the first century. The, the members of this church found it hard to be godly, to pursue sexual purity by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We have new challenges, we absolutely do. 
but it's never been an easy thing, brothers, to be a believer. Can I give you a second word there? It's never going to be an easy thing to be a believer. Nations rise and fall. The church enjoys seasons of God's grace and favor in special ways. The the Reformation, the First Great Awakening, the Reformed resurgence of a few years ago that this church and related ministries was such a key part of. God gives favor, but it's never going to be an easy thing to be a Christian. It's always going to be a, a hard reality. Brothers, there's always going to be a cross on our back. There's no opportunity to follow Christ in a crossless way. Walking with Christ through the valley of the shadow of death all the way to the celestial city that we can see gleaming beyond. We can, we can see it coming, and yet it's, it's a ways off. We are walking with Jesus, and everyone who walks with Jesus does so with a cross on our back. It will always be so. Don't be led astray by a form of godliness that would indicate that you can follow Jesus with a crossless option. There is no crossless option. Jesus has died for us on the cross and risen from the grave three days later and ascended to the Father's right hand in glory. And what that means practically is that all who would follow Jesus carry a cross. We do not atone for our own sins. We cannot atone for our own sins, but we have the cross, the scandal upon us. If you're hearing preachers and teachers before we dive in here who present the Christian faith as if there is no cost to being a believer, you're not hearing true Christianity preached and taught. And as, as we have seen already today, you need to run from that. You're being lied to. That's the doctrine of demons, according to Paul. The doctrine of demons doesn't mean some woo, tricked out theology that nobody could understand unless they take a psychedelic drug. The doctrine of demons is doctrine that goes against the, the cross-driven Christianity of the Bible. That's the doctrine of demons. Somebody comes into your small group. If somebody comes into your family, if somebody comes into your church and they are bringing a false gospel, they are bringing the doctrine of demons. So what do you do? You gregorate in the Greek here in verse 13. You watch out. New Testament watchfulness has at least four dimensions. How, how do you watch out? First, watch out for Satan. Second, watch out for worldliness. Third, watch yourself. Fourth, watch for Christ. Let's walk through these subpoints. The Puritans used to have 50 subpoints, so don't don't at me, bro, okay? I only got four. First, we must watch out for Satan. All of us, not some of us, not those of us who go to abortion clinics and try and love to win people back and save babies or something like this or go into a similar kind of difficult context. Every Christian, every man needs to be watchful 
the church needs watchful men. 1 Peter 5a, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This takes us back to, to what I already argued, that whether you want to or not, you have an enemy. Every human being has an enemy. Now, we're in the age of feelings. We're in the age where if I feel a certain way, that dictates reality. And your call, if I feel a certain way, is to affirm me. That's all you can do. You can't challenge me. You can't rebuke me. You can't correct me. All you can do in this age, according to the humanistic doctrine of demons, is affirm me. If I feel like I need to go, to, go through gender transition surgery, if I'm a nine-year-old and I feel like I need to have body parts cut off because I'm trapped in the wrong body, you, even as a father or mother of me, have no rights over me. You can only affirm my decision. That's called the gospel of affirmation, where the true biblical gospel is a gospel of repentance. And we are losing our grip, even in the church, on the gospel of repentance. We have an enemy. We cannot only affirm ourselves and affirm one another. We may feel one type of way, but that doesn't dictate reality. Your feelings, in many cases in your life, got nothing to do with it. What matters is the truth. What matters is objective doctrine. What matters is not your opinion. What matters is God's verdict. That is what matters. Nothing puts us more in the teeth of this pagan age than these kind of words that I am saying, which are only basic Bible words. We will feel many different ways. Your, your wife, your kids, your friends, your fellow church members, all of us will feel lots of things. God gave us affections, to use that word of the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. God has made us, if you will, emotional creatures. It's not bad to feel joy and to mourn and to love and to, to be sorrowful in different cases. The Bible has an abundant amount of material on your God-centered emotional life. The Psalms are rife with every array of feeling known to man but we are never led by our feelings. We are always led by truth. There are moments for every one of us, every last one of us, where we follow our feelings. I don't necessarily mean in the kind of very drastic gender-based ways I was talking about a minute ago. I mean even in just like a conflict with a friend, a roommate, a spouse, where what does, your, what does your feeling, your emotional state say to do? Well, it says to burn things down. It says, against all known evidence, that upping the ante in this emotional conversation is going to resolve matters. It says that the nuclear button is the way for peace. And I don't know if anyone else has experienced this. The nuclear button is not the way of peace. I'm here to report that from the front lines. That's living by our feelings, isn't it? 
We all do this. We all need ourselves to be reshaped at every level, including our emotions, by God. We may feel like we don't have an enemy. We have an enemy. You have an adversary. The adversary is hunting you. Do you understand this? Being from Maine, I understand hunting culture. It's not practiced everywhere in America, modern America, of course, so you may or may not connect with it. But you may know that men go hunting in part, I think, just to wear eye black under their eyes and wear camo. I mean, you do feel, you feel cool when you're, when you're wearing this stuff. Let's just be completely honest. And so you have that experience. If you're in Maine, there's an annual lottery and uh, there's moose and deer and stuff like this that you can hunt. If you're super manly, you might kill a bear with your bare hands. Just, no, probably not with your bare hands. And, and what you do is you, in, in most cases in hunting, right, you sit in a tree stand for hours and hours and hours. And you're watching and you're waiting. You and I, right now are being hunted. Don't take my word for it. Peter, your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion. The devil is a created being. The devil is not on the level of God. The devil is not divine. There's a creator-creature distinction between God and the devil. But the devil is a very powerful spiritual being. Presented here in 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil is a roaring lion who devours. Interestingly, we're not called by Scripture to fear the devil. Do you pick up that subtle nuance here in 1 Peter 5, building off of 1 Corinthians 16, 13? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Peter does not say, fear the devil. Peter does say, though, Watch out for the devil. There's a subtle distinction there that makes all the difference. And what Peter is saying and what Paul is saying is, again, you have an adversary who hates you, who wants you to sin and burn to ash every good thing God has given you. And if you will grant Satan power, if you will not be watchful, it could well happen to you. So, by the grace of God, by the power of repentance, by the strength of the Spirit that is in us, don't let the devil take you down. Second, we must watch for worldliness and its effect. What does 1 John 2, 15 teach us? Do not love the world. And John goes on to say, or anything in it. John is not saying there is no common grace in this world. John is not saying there is no dark chocolate to enjoy or basketball games to watch or walks on the beach and on and on it goes. Sushi, depending on your opinion there. John is not saying there's no pleasure in this world. John is not saying there's no happiness here. John is saying there is an order that is run by Satan, staffed up by the bureaucrats of hell, and it's got offices all throughout this world, all around you, don't love it. 
don't love what is worldly. It's not hard to be worldly. It's easy. It's the default setting. In fact, the temperature seems to be going up in America. Somebody seems to have cranked the thermostat in America to make the worldliness temperature go up outside of the church and even tragically inside the church. And this means that it's not going to be hard to give in to worldliness. It's going to be natural. It's natural to follow the world. But this means, brothers, that a Christian has a greater opportunity still. The days are evil. But what happens when the darkness closes in? The light shines all the more. Behold the light of the world right here. You are the light of the world as a Christian. Not an internal light that beams from you because you're some sort of perfect, disnified character who loves yourself just the way you should. No, because you are made in God's image as every human person is, and now you are being remade in the image of the true human, Jesus Christ, and so light has come upon you, and you are actually shining every minute you live as a believer in this world. You may say, but I'm not in ministry. I'm not MacArthur. I don't have over 50 years in a pulpit. I don't have a global ministry. I witness to like, if I'm lucky, two people at my job. How am I light? What am, what am I? You are light where God has you be light. No one else can be light where you are but you in the way that God has called you to be. You are salt. You are light. You are the light of the world. God actually wants Christians to be scattered on a weekly basis all over the place and be 10,000 points of light wherever they are. There may only be one person, let's say, that you get to evangelize on a regular basis. You may not get to heaven. And there are thousands standing in the line of those you helped win to faith. What if there are three? What if there are two? What if there is one? That one matters. Your witness matters. You being salt and light and not loving the world like the people around you matters. It matters to God and it matters in the world God has made. You never live a doxology-less minute. You never live a minute, that is, when you are not glorifying God as a Christian, at least able to, by a godly witness. Would you please be tremendously encouraged by this? Your life matters. Your Christian witness, men, matters. More than you know, God is using it. God will use it. Remember, quick word here, disciples sometimes are made on the spot and sometimes are made over a 5, 10, 15, 20-year process, whatever it may be. Is that not true of some of you in here? 
Did you not have a witness to you for months and years, even decades before you came to Christ? Don't lose heart. It's hard to make disciples, but God is still making them. And you have an opportunity in a worldly environment to shine. Third, as we talked about, 1 Timothy 4.16 shows we must all watch ourselves. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. <laughs> We're naturally good at watching others, aren't we? We've got the spiritual gift of watching others. Don't necessarily have the spiritual gift of watching ourselves. Is it not easier to watch your brother call out your brother's sin than to watch yourself and call out your own sin? Is that not easier for all of us? Well, the Bible calls us to dedicate our best energies to watching not those outside of us, but us. Never in a selfish way, never in a careless way regarding family or friends, church members, whatever it may be. But because you and I need a lot of careful watching. And this is true even for those of us who are in Christ and dwelt by the Spirit as every believer is. Even when you are born again, even when young Timothy has the Apostle Paul himself instructing him, having discipled him in the Christian faith, Paul is not saying, Timothy, you are good to go, bro. You are locked and loaded. You don't got to watch yourself. You're good. No, Paul is saying, you, the one I trained, the one I know is born again, with a godly mother and a godly grandmother, with all this training and background and teaching behind you, you got to watch yourself. If that is true of Timothy, that is true of every one of us. And I have been a Christian long enough now, I'm 40, to have watched numerous professing believers, important phrase, walk away. And it, it, there's, just, there's just nothing harder in this world than having somebody who is dear to you, who professed to love the Lord, walk away. Brothers, let us not be those who walk away. Let us dedicate ourselves to watching ourselves, not just in your 20s and 30s. You gotta watch yourself all the way to the end. You can never let up. You can never relax. You need to be like the men of Gideon's army. Why, why did the Lord talk to Gideon about how the men would lap the water from the stream? Do you remember this? As God is whittling Gideon's army down, you would think the Lord would say, you need more firepower to go against the enemies of my people. And what did the Lord say? You need fewer, because I'm going to put my strength and might and power on display, and the whittling down device that the Lord used was the men who lapped with their hand. And what were those men doing? They were keeping an eye on the horizon. They didn't put their head in the water and drink. If you were on the battlefields of the ancient Middle East, you would want to plunge your head into water after a brutal day-long fight. You would, every instinct in you would be crying out for water. What's stronger than the need for water? Only basically the need to breathe in the human person. But the men Gideon was to select for his army were watchful men, men who would bring up the hand to the mouth 
and keep an eye on the horizon, and that is you. You keep an eye on the horizon at all times. You are watching yourself. You are as a father, as a protector, as a husband, always keeping an eye out. You never are slacking. You never are letting the devil send emissaries into your home that you are sleeping on that watch. You are always lapping up the water, bringing your hand to your mouth, keeping an eye on what is around you, keeping an eye on yourself first. Fourth subpoint: we cannot fail to watch for Christ. This is the really happy part of the watching duty, and yet it is no glancing thing that the Son of God is going to return. We think of a text like Matthew 25, 1 to 13, the parable of the virgins condensed and trimmed down. Basically, there are a whole bunch of people who are not waiting for the bridegroom to return. Virgins, uh, verse 2 of Matthew 25, five who were foolish and five who were wise. The wise ones are waiting for the return in this parable in Matthew 25 of the bridegroom at any minute. Any minute. All of a sudden, in verse 11, the bridegroom comes, or verse 10, and then in verse 11 we read this, afterward the other virgins came also. These are the unwise virgins, the foolish ones, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then what does the Lord of the church say to close the point? What word does he use? Watch. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We must watch for Christ. We must live ready. We must be like those in wartime, as we are in spiritual war, who sleep with their uniform on. We are ready at any time for the return of the king. The return of the king is going to be greater than any movie. The return of the king is going to be greater than any earthly book or novel you read or comic strip you follow. The return of the king is going to be a world-shaking event. It doesn't feel like the king is coming back. It feels to many of us like the castle is being overrun and we're being plundered, but it is not so. The king is coming. The angels are even now polishing their weaponry. The horses are getting bridled. The king is preparing himself for his return. He is outside the gates and he will come back. And so you and I must not fail to watch for him. Do you understand? Watching is a huge part of what you and I do as a Christian and as a Christian man. This is not a small part of your duties. This is a vital part of a joy-driven Christian existence. Second truth, the church needs men who will not move from Christ. We won't move on to something else. This is what Paul says secondly to the Corinthian church. Stand firm in the faith. Hold your ground. Do not yield to the devil. 
when opposition comes, when the hunter hunts, your tendency and mine is going to be to move, to not hold our position, to be like a weak army and flee the battlefield and run for the hills and try to preserve our lives without even firing a shot back. And this is not the apostolic command. The apostolic command to the Corinthian church and to those who would lead it and to us men today is to not run, but to hold fast. This may be what the church most underestimates today. All who are godly will suffer persecution in this life, the scripture teaches us. You will have storms wash over you and smash you as a Christian and as a church. And today, too many young evangelicals in particular think first of hiring a good PR firm and trying to do damage control and figure a way to spin this and so on and so forth. And there are different situations to handle in different ways, but fundamentally, when persecution, unrighteous attacks come upon you individually as a Christian and the church corporately, the church needs men, the church needs elders and pastors who will not run, but who will hold fast, who will take the storm, to switch the metaphor to a naval one, who when the waves start getting 10 feet high and 20 feet high and 30 feet high, will do what ancient soldiers used to do. They don't run, they don't go down below decks. The captain, the leader of the men, would take rope and he would tie the rope around himself and he would have his men knot it as hard as they could knot it and he would tie himself to the mast. He was staying with the ship, he was not bailing out. He was ultimately, if it was called, going to go down with the ship. And brothers, we are in a negative world. We are in a tie yourself to the mast kind of culture. If you're in a positive world, according to social philosophers like Charles Taylor, if you're in a positive world, being a Christian gets you advantages in culture and society. People, People applaud you for being a Christian. If you're in a neutral world, people don't applaud you and people don't throw arrows at you. You're okay. You're part of the society. It's fine. You can be here. You have a place. Christianity is, is not the dominant voice anymore. Uh-uh. It's now kind of a secular humanistic paradigm, at least in a lot of places in the West, but it's neutral. It's okay. It's neutral. You being a Christian in a top business here in the L.A. area, uh, you, you being in, in the entertainment world, in politics, whatever it may be, and being a clear Christian, like people know, in a neutral world, you're fine. You can't make too many waves, but you're fine. You, living as a Christian in the negative world, you pay for being a Christian. This is where just being a member of a church that holds to biblical sexuality like this one, for example, that's where you get 
hunted down. That's where your resume is being poured over. Are you one of these fundamentalist Christians? I don't know precisely where we are in the sweep of history and the plans of God, but I can tell you for sure, we are in a negative world today. If you're a younger Christian, you're entering a negative world. If you have children, they're going to live at least it's probable, in a negative world. If you're making disciples, those disciples are entering a negative world. The church needs to retool its paradigm, not going away from the Scripture, not adding something to the Scripture. We add nothing in our worldview that is outside of the Scripture. No thinker adds anything to the Christian worldview, not in the sense of retooling the faith, trimming this off, adding this in from outside. No, we need to retool our paradigm in that we don't expect the world to applaud us for being a believer. We need to recognize that a major part of the battle in what comes is simply holding fast, standing firm in the faith, not apologizing for being a born-again believer. That's the kind of Christian we desperately need. We don't need fancy men We don't need super pedigreed men. We need strong men. Men made strong by the grace of God. Men who will be on a police force, men who will be working at a company, men who will be in the local union or whatever it may be, who when the conversation turns to Christianity in some form and its negative effects will not yield. They won't strike back in anger. They will hold their ground in love and as best they can present the truth of God. That is the kind of witness we need. And you say, Strand, you weird guy with the Scottish last name that you're pronouncing in a Gaelic way, which causes no trouble for me in America, I assure you. No one ever pronounces my name right. Strand, That might have worked once, but I don't know that your plan is really a good plan. This is gonna, this is a high cost plan that you're, you're giving me here. I would just say, take heart. I'm not haranguing you. Take heart and in your devotions, go back to the book of Acts and just see how the apostles and disciples and early church lived out their faith in a negative world. Brothers, what did they do? They didn't apologize for Jesus. They went into synagogues and they threw down. They went into public squares and cosmopolitan cities and everywhere in between, and they declared that Jesus is Lord. They preached the cross. They preached the resurrection. They got heat, and yet they did not yield. What is true of the apostle Paul? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. What did Paul say was the proof of his clear biblical ministry. The super apostles, so-called, fake teachers of the word of God are saying Paul has no ministry at all. And how does Paul defend himself? He has a number of ways he defends himself. One of the ways he defends himself is by showing just how firmly he has stood in the faith. Just how much he has endured for Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. This is the cost for standing firm. 
2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Sometimes people on a message board or an Instagram account say, yeah, but this courage that you're calling for, this holding fast, that's what every Christian is supposed to do. That's true. They'll say it's genderless courage or genderless standing firm. In In a form, that's right. We can affirm that. But remember that it is Paul who modeled this, and remember that it is elders who are called to stand firm in the faith, and remember that it is men who are heads of their home, and so men have the challenge and the call of God, more on this in just a minute, to stand firm. It is not your wife that you send to do your dirty work. It is not your wife that you ask to pay the price for the truth of Jesus Christ. She may have a price to pay as a Christian. It is us. It is we who pay the price. It is we, godly men, who step up. It is us, when there is somebody in the vicinity who would attack, when there is a false teacher in the mix, it is us who pay the price. We don't send our wife to stand firm for us and our family. We don't send our daughters. We send ourselves. We stand firm in the faith. We are the ones who are called to emulate a godly man like the Apostle Paul and pay the price by the grace of God for the gospel. Not just men in ministry. We need way more than men in ministry living out this kind of faith. We need an entire church of men who stand firm. This leads to our third truth. The church needs men who show mature courage. The church needs men who show mature courage. This is the third part of 1 Corinthians 16, 13, our verse. It's translated, act like men or act courageously in some translations. In the Greek, the word is andrizesta. It's a word that the Apostle Paul coins. He introduces into the vocabulary, andrizesta, and it means directly act like men. It is true, as some translations have it, that this basically boils down to be courageous because the very emblem of manhood is courage. That for the Apostle Paul is what manhood means. God-centered, God-powered courage. God has made men to be men. Men are not women. God has also not made men to be boys. We think of 1 Corinthians 13, 
11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There is a lot of childishness in our culture, and every man is tempted in his own form toward childishness. Let that be said. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus is to leave boyhood behind. This is not the way, in many respects, our culture encourages young men. Young men are struggling today. Young men, in many cultural indicators, are lagging behind. The lockdowns of the last few years have only exacerbated these already existing trends. Now young men are not being called out, even in a common grace way, to get out and do hard things and do hard work and put themselves on the line. We are losing our work ethic. We are losing the sense that it is good for a man to work and work hard. We are losing a sense of responsibility. We're losing a sense of duties. We want to stay in our homes safe, not risk anything, and pay no price in this life. And that is not what we are made for. We are made to act like men. I do not say that, like the Apostle Paul, to condemn you, to flame you, to rage against you, to break you down and leave you quivering. Absolutely not. As I have said, this is an upward call. It is a call to every man to leave behind childishness, boyish, boyishness, and to pursue in Christ maturity. To act like a man is to leave childish ways behind. So we need men who will embrace being men. There's a good book called It's Good to Be a Man by Foster and Tennant. I endorsed it. It's good to be a man. I would encourage you to check that out and pick that up. Our culture says it's not good to be a man. Men are toxic. And the Bible says, act like men. The Bible says, be courageous. You may not be called to some kind of Churchillian stand in the West to save civilization. You may not be called to the mission field, but you are called where you are, with the loved ones in front of you, in your church, to act like a man. And that is truly, to repeat myself, the need of the age. And this is possible. All things are possible in Christ. Miracles happen in Christ. Men who have not been trained in these ways grow. Men who feel beaten down change. Men who have a catalog of shame and failure in their past rise in Christ Jesus. Remember the character of the father of the parable of the prodigal son prodigal son gambles it all away. He's rich. He has everything you could want in earthly terms, and he squanders it. And what does he do when he goes home with barely clothing on his back? It's all gone. How does the father receive him? 
Does the father do what a father feels at some level entitled to do? When, when a child messes up in the way that the father said not to mess up and predicted would happen, there's a sense in you as a father where you go, I told you so. Yes, anybody else ever experienced that? Okay, two people, good to know. Okay. That's how we might expect a father. That's how a natural father would act. But you see, God is not a creature. God is not like us. The father in the parable throws a celebration for his son, runs to his son, kisses his son, and gives him everything back and more. Welcome to the Christian faith. Welcome to what the Father does with men who have lived a life of shame and failure, who have blown up their families, who have blown up their marriage, who are not walking in purity, who are addicted to drugs, who are addicted to substances, who are addicted to pornography. We are not here just so we, who are Christians, can grow a little bit more. We are here because God makes all things new. And if your past is checkered at best, there is a father who waits at the door for prodigals, for those who repent and trust Christ in faith. If you have not acted like a man at all in a biblical sense, there is one who will help you do so. There is a spirit who will renew you to the uttermost. There may still be consequences of your sin. Becoming a Christian does not necessarily erase any consequences or circumstances. We know this. There may be challenges you bear the rest of your days. There may be a real cost to your sin. Part of why we don't want to indulge ourselves in a life of sin is that there are long-term effects in at least a good number of cases. And yet, there is a father, I repeat myself, who waits to welcome sinners So in practical form, along these lines, take any step to maturity you can. Let me give just a few quick wisdom ideas. These aren't necessarily chapter and verse, so don't flame me on the social media world things. You want to talk like a man, and this is what fathers help boys to do. You want to dress like a man. You want to shake hands like a man. You want to put your shoulders back like a man. You want to look people in the eye like a man. You want to grow a beard like a man. (laughs) Just checking if you're awake. We can be friends. Jesus had a beard. Just kidding. (laughs) Kidding, not kidding. There's, There's freedom. There's freedom in Christ. Steward your body like a man. Embrace whatever strength you have. Spoiler alert, we're all not built like the rock, and the rock looks short next to Shaq, so take encouragement, or at least I do. (laughs) But embrace what strength God has given you. Bodily training is of some value. The point is this, embrace being a man. And there is a real sense, men, in which different forms of discipline are connected, okay? We're prone in the church today to a kind of Gnostic Christian manhood 
where being a Christian man only means embracing what's called complementarian convictions or sometimes called patriarchal convictions. And, and so you just believe certain doctrines, like four doctrines on a sheet, and then that's all that being a man means. Well, there's wisdom issues and gray areas I've pressed in for just a moment, but fundamentally, we want to be those who pursue discipline and who pursue self-control and who recognize that, that manhood is not just a doctrine for the mind. It's something to be presented, so to speak, and lived out. And all facets of our life are connected. When you are spiritually disciplined, when you wake up in the morning to read your Bible for 20 minutes before work, yes, your eyes are bleary. Yes, you're tired. Yes, you could use an extra 30 minutes, especially as the years go on. Nonetheless, when you rise early to read the Word of God, to feed on the Word of God, to watch your soul, that's spiritual discipline. That's training in you. And that has all sorts of ripple effects. What starts happening is that other areas of your life where you're undisciplined start to come into view. It's not just spiritual. Wait a minute, I'm not caring for my mind. Wait a minute, I'm not caring for my body. Wait a minute, I'm not stewarding these gifts that God has given me. This doesn't mean that we're all going to look like a superhero. Absolutely not. We're going to bench 375 and awe the whole weight room. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that our, our lives are connected lives. And it is a glorious thing when God gets a hold of a man and, and inculcates discipline in him at the spiritual level, and then there's ripple effects, aren't there? Then he starts watching his mouth where he may not have in the past. He starts watching what he watches. He starts treating those around him better. He stops taking his kids, if he has kids, for granted, and he starts investing in them, even in small ways. He, he may not have degrees and that sort of thing in theology or Bible, but he starts gathering the family twice a week to read a chapter of the Word at dinner. And he asks, does anyone have anything to pray about in the family? And in a very simple, humble way, he prays for the family. And he then tries to redeem the time with his kids. He stops taking his wife for granted if he has a wife. And he starts seeing her strangely as one he needs to shepherd and lead where he never saw that before. That's the strangely part. And so he starts trying to invest in her and love her better and live with her in an understanding way, 1 Peter 3. And he starts approaching his job differently. And now when he goes to his job, he's not just punching the clock like we all do, but instead, no, now he realizes every minute is a quorum deo minute, a minute lived unto God. So even if his task is secular and has nothing to do with Bible promotion or whatever, he's recognizing this is a salt and light moment to shine in this wicked world. And so now he's approaching his job differently. And then he realizes he might only have eight or nine decades at best on this earth, perhaps. And so he's going to steward his body however well he can. And he's going to start trying to experience what it means to train himself that has some value. And so there's dozens of ripple effects that take place in a man when he acts like a man. Fourth and final truth 
this morning. The church needs men who will not accept spiritual weakness. We've been touching on this theme. Paul says this fourthly in verse 13. Krataiusta in the Greek, which means very simply, be strong. Be strong. Very closely connected to act like men. In fact, all through the Bible, there's a call to men of God to be strong. Joshua 1.9, Moses' words to Joshua at the end of Moses' life. Like the central thing this man wants to say to this young leader, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We think also of 2 Samuel 10, 11 and 12. And he said, Joab, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But the Ammonites, if they are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. The call to courage. The call to strength echoes from all the Bible, from one man to another. Think of dying David, the king, the greatest king of Israel. 1 Kings 2, verse 2, I am about to go the way of all the earth. This is to his son. He's dying. This is it. This is what it boils down to. There's minutes on the clock, not hours, not days. This is what it boils down to from a father to his son. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways. Manly strength is anchored in spiritual strength, God-given strength. It ripples through all your life, as we were just discussing. But it is anchored in spiritual truth. When a man hears this call, realizes he's not strong as he should be, but he wants to be strong, God makes him strong. And that is the kind of man who will take on the world not in a display of his own pride, but in order to show the glory of God in the world of men. That is a man like a David who will go out when all Israel's warriors run away from Goliath. They tremble at the sound of his voice day after day after day. And then a shepherd boy who doesn't even keep the good part of the flock He's the youngest, so he keeps the scraggliest animals and watches them over. He shows up, as we see in 1 Samuel. David has lived an anonymous life when he shows up to Goliath's battlefield. But David has been pursuing God-centered strength already. There were lions and bears that came against those scraggly little animals that the shepherd boy kept. 
He wasn't an impressive specimen. He was short. He was nothing fancy or special in natural terms. But when the lion came against David's flock, young David, small, caught the lion's mane and cut his throat. So David, even though he looks untested and he looks like nothing, has already been training in God-centered strength when he shows up on the Philistines' battlefield. And David does not hesitate once he lands there. The, the narrative of 1 Samuel 17 and following shows us that David basically runs toward Goliath. And he doesn't even have to trade blows with him. It is one single stone that fells the most fearsome warrior of the ancient world. That passage is not just supposed to give us courage for our own battles, but what looks fearsome to you? What looks unovercomable to you? Know this, God will give the strength he requires to you, just as he gave it to David. So in conclusion, stop embracing weakness. In God, find your strength. Be like the runner, Eric Little, the one from Chariots of Fire. Eric Little had everything the world could ever want. He won gold in the Olympics. He had money offered him. He had positions at Oxford and Cambridge in the academic world. The man literally had it all arrayed before him after he won Olympic gold as Chariots of Fire, the film shows. Good film for father and sons to watch. And Eric Little gave it all up. He went to China to be a missionary in a far-flung place, not a cool cosmopolitan center, a very difficult place, just a handful of kids he was teaching and just a few folks he was sharing the gospel with. <laughs> he went from the height of global accomplishment to utter anonymity. And then World War II picked up and the Japanese entered his area and so Eric Little was placed in a war camp, in a prison camp. So it must have been, in natural terms, we would say that he has really crashed and burned. All that influence, all that opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. We don't get a whole lot of these. We don't get a whole lot of Christians who really and truly are just super impressive by God's grace in worldly terms. And here is one of them, and he's dying in a war camp, and his life seems wasted. But there's a story that has survived, and I leave you with this, from Eric Little's time before he dies of a brain tumor, anonymous, in a Japanese war camp. It is this. There was a prostitute in the camp, and other men would only help her if she did favors for them, so to speak, choosing my words carefully. There was only one man, this woman later told interviewers, who asked for no favors from her. It was Eric Little. 
He built shelves for her. He showed her kindness. He treated her with dignity. I, I can guess that he probably shared the gospel with her to try to win her to Christ, proclaimed Christ to her, said better. And Eric Little, in doing so, left a testimony that echoes into today. You see, even the quiet moments matter. No moment of your life as a godly man is anonymous in truth. All of it is quorum Deo unto God. Let's pray. Father, please help us to be these kind of men that the Apostle Paul has called for. This is truly the need of the church. The church needs those who lead it formally with strength and courage, but the church needs an entire army of men who may or may not have a title, but who are pursuing godliness by your grace. Give us these kind of men. Wake your church up. Help these men here and watching see that their life matters to you. Help them understand, Father, your character, that you are not the one who looks at your children, your born-again church, with continual anger and rage at how we fail. You call us to repentance, but you actually look upon us with kindness and mercy and love. And where we have failed, you pick us up and you send us back out. I pray for the spirit of David to be upon these men by the grace of God that is in us. I pray that we will be strong, stand firm, be courageous. I pray that we will act like men by the power of Christ in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.